Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Welcome to episode 78 of Channel Journeys. This is your host and channel chief, Rob Spee. Thank you for listening. We are just one day away from our Thanksgiving holiday. And for those of you listening in Canada, I know that that was already a month ago for you, your Canadian Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to all of you too. I try to be thankful for all that I have all year round, but this holiday is a great annual reminder. And I'm very thankful for all of you, my listeners, all of my Channel Journey listeners, and I'm thankful too for my sponsor, Allbound, a great group of folks with their headquarters right here in Atlanta. Allbound is a world-leading partner portal that is super fast and easy to set up. They give you an easier way to collaborate with your partners on co-marketing and co-selling. They have best-in-class reviews for automating the training of your partners, helping to manage deals and engaging partners in in all aspects of their life cycle with you. So check them out at allbound.com. I had the pleasure of meeting today's guest at Channel Focus earlier in the month. We were talking about a topic that is actually related to Thanksgiving. What caused people to wonder if they'd be able to find a turkey for Thanksgiving? And if they did find one, they'd probably pay a lot more for it. And just about everything else that you find in the grocery store that they want to put on the table? You guessed it, supply chain shortages. We are hearing all about them. They're hitting us. They're hitting our partners and our customers. Today, I'm talking with Hanan Greenberg. SVP of Corporate Strategy at Model N about the impacts of the supply chain shortages on the technology channel. Are you ready to talk, Turkey? Let's go. Hanan, hey, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Good morning, Rob. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So where do we find you today? Working from the home office in San Jose, California. In San Jose. All right. So you had a a much shorter trip back from Channel Focus where uh, we had a chance to meet last week. Yeah, it was a quick hop and a jump, only 51-minute flight. I'm envious of that, but it was so nice to meet you and so great to see everyone there. First live channel event in a couple of years, so that was nice, wasn't it? It was fantastic. I was really ecstatic to see so many people come out there from all over the country, from the leading vendors out there, really investing the time to be there in person. It was fantastic. And a great job by the Channel Focus people. It was well executed. Yeah, they always do a great job. And Model N was a sponsor there. Yeah, we were a platinum sponsor and delighted to be there. We uh, had the opportunity to spend some time talking a little about the lifecycle reward programs in the context of recurring revenue, which actually got a really good audience to attend. But as much as we liked um, presenting, I more enjoyed listening to the other sessions. It was really fantastic. The, the panel discussions were riveting. They were. Yeah. And what's always fun about that event is we're all facing the same challenges in the channel as the channel continues to transform and modernize, I guess. We're trying to modernize our programs. So we're all trying to figure that out. So it's really neat hearing how different companies are doing it in different ways. Indeed. And I think, you know, in between the sessions, the networking opportunities were great to listen to what people thought about things being discussed on the panels. And I think that a couple of topics that definitely came up as a recurring theme. One was getting better alignment with the financial organization. I don't know if you remember that panel in which the teams, they were mimicking their discussions with their own CFOs. And and I think there's a way to make finance a much more friendly and effective partner 
for the channel organization inside companies. And, uh, and I think the other topic which got a lot of attention was the emergence of these influencer channels, these non-transacting partners, and the concerns people had about how to measure and how to incent. And to some degree, I think we might be overcomplicating the problem. End of the day, we already have incentive programs today that are not tied directly to transactional business. Technically, all of the MDF programs are not tied to an absolute sales outcome. They're tied to activities. And in a sense, influencers, in my opinion, will just naturally fall under that category. Time will tell. Time will tell. That conversation with the CFO, that was a lot of fun. And I'm gearing up for that same conversation. So <laughs> I was listening in. So Hanan, tell us what you do. So what does a, a SVP of corporate strategy at Model N actually do every day? Well, first of all, I should say this is a relatively new role for me, although it is a bit closing a cycle because I joined Model N in a corporate development role and led a couple of acquisitions in the past. But then I moved into leading sales for a period and then moved into marketing. And in the last seven years, I, I was actually the uh, general manager of one of our business units in, uh, in high tech. Um, so this move is relatively new. And in a sense, going back to familiar territory, analyzing markets, analyzing partnership opportunities, uh, looking at ways for us to expand into adjacent offerings and uh, everything else that you would expect from corporate development to do. Gotcha. How large is your company? Model N is just a sub $200 million in sales. And we are uh, roughly about 1,000 employees, a little less than 1,000 employees. We operate in about 11 different locations. We're projecting next year, we just actually yesterday had our guidance call and we're projecting to be well north of 200 million in sales next year. Wow, very nice. We just reported, I think it was 24% year-over-year growth in recurring revenue sales. Excellent. And your conversation, the presentation that you guys did was around incentives during the life cycle, but that's not all that Model N does, right? You guys uh, have other value that you provide. Yeah, Model N has two business practices. One is focused on life sciences, where we service today 48 of the global 50 pharmaceutical companies and many medical device companies as well, like uh, Stryker and Boston Scientific, but all the known names in pharma, you know, J&J and Pfizer and all those are Model N customers. And there we manage everything from pricing and contracts through to chargebacks, which is the pharma way of making channels whole on broken prices, as well as rebates. Rebates is a big issue in pharma, and we actually process probably 80 to 90% of all rebates in the US in the pharmaceutical world. We also handle regulatory processes in pharma, including government pricing, Medicaid rebates, and managed care. That's the pharma side. On the technology side of our business, where we service almost everybody in the technology stack. We service people in software and chip manufacturers and storage, wireless networking, consumer electronics, et cetera. We provide an end-to-end -end solution that handles everything from global price management and execution of pricing across all channels through to all of the channel transactions, especially for, for those who are handling also physical product. We handle inventory and price protection all the way through programs, rebates, co-op funds, MDFs, and all the way downstream to channel data management, which we do for many, many companies. All right, good. Well, our channel journeys audience is primarily on the technology side. We're, we're all consumers on the pharma side. We're benefiting from that. But, but let's focus our conversation on the technology side. And, and you and I chatted a little bit about the supply chain, and we are all seeing and feeling the impact of these supply chain issues. I don't know if you, did you see it? When I was driving down to Channel Focus, down to Dana Point, I took the road along the coast and I could see those ships out there, the, the, you know, just waiting to unload. So you could actually see what's going on out there, but there's a lot behind this. And 
you have a, an interesting view and perspective of what's going on with these supply chain channel, uh, sl- supply chain shortages and the impact they're having on the channel. Yeah, definitely from our vantage points of servicing the entire technology stack, because everything from the components of chips and, and electronic components, and we service um, 13 of the top 20 chip makers, all the way through to, you know, the, you can think of it as the embedded solutions like uh, storage solutions or wireless or networking solutions, and all the way to final goods. We do see, we have a, an interesting vantage point, I should say, in terms of how this is impacting the companies and their channels and the end customers. And really what's going on here is we have this perfect storm. And the storm actually started even before there were actual problems in the supply chain. The first problem started about a year and a half ago when the manufacturers and the consumers of products were giving false indications about demand. So if you looked at the automakers, they were expecting with the drop of, you know, of the pandemic that there's going to be a massive drop in consumption. And so that's what they communicated to everybody in their supply chain. Well, what if you're a supplier for automakers, what are you going to do when you get that news from your customer? You're going to start restricting your manufacturing capacity. All right. So that was the first thing that happened. Now, what turned out was that those forecasts were not true. And the demand was as strong as ever. In fact, got a little stronger. But everybody on the downstream supply chain started downsizing their capacity. And it's not something you just flip a switch and turn it on again. If you took a fabrication plant and put it on hiatus, Turning it on again is going to be a big effort. So that's one problem that happened. Then on top of that, we had real scarcity in some raw materials. And so the cost of manufacturing those raw materials started going up. We also had some scarcity in workforce capable, you know, available workforce. So we started with something that wasn't a real supply chain issue, and we made it a real supply chain issue over the last 18 months. And now we're all living with the consequences. And so we now have, when you look at it from a macroeconomic perspective, we have some very real inflationary signals happening already. We're seeing prices go up across the board, not unique to technology, but just across the board. We're seeing prices go up. We're seeing you know, the yield on bonds go down. We're seeing interest rates go up, and, and there's definitely a forecast for them to go, continue to go up. So there is really the beginning of an inflationary move, which isn't making life any easier. Then when you overlay that with a real increase in cost of manufacturing and still limited availability of resources and raw materials, we have a real supply chain issue. And uh, and I think it's manifesting itself um, now everywhere. And uh, companies, sorry, go ahead. Hanan, sorry. That's really interesting. There's so many different components to this. What actual products are we talking about in the channel that are impacted? You mentioned chips. We've all heard about the chip shortage. What else are you seeing? Well, everything that uses a chip. So anything that almost runs a current today has either an electronic component or multiple electronic components and or semiconductor chips inside. And so I'm seeing the impact across everything. So whether it's companies who are providing networking and security solutions, whether it's companies providing you know, uh, cloud and, and cloud computing solutions, whether it's companies who are feeding into downstream, you know, appliances, because again, we, we tend to think of technology in somewhat of a limited way. But you, when you think of cars, or you think of home appliances, they have as much computing power today as the lunar landing module of the Apollo 11, in fact, more. So the average car has probably more, 100 times more computing power than that. So uh, so everything is impacted. You know, when I talk to my customers in the storage space, they have missing components to complete producing a drive that goes to the market. 
So, so I think that everyone is impacted. There are a few companies, and I think there are very few of them, who really have a very good control over their entire supply chain and have invested heavily enough incentives, not to their channels, but to their suppliers, to assure that they can continue getting a good stream of product and that they can still bring product to market. I won't go into specific names, but the, you know, when I think of video conferencing, there's various companies out there servicing that space. I can see clear distinctions between those who have really created a very strong relationship with the suppliers of the components that go into what the final video conferencing solution looks like, and those who do not, and those who do not are having a really hard time supplying their channels and their customers. Interesting. You know, a, a lot of companies have moved to the cloud and they're not buying their own infrastructure. They're, they're getting it from the cloud service providers, right? And even storage and things like that. Are those, are you seeing those, those mega cloud companies, cloud service providers, um, the Amazons, the Azures, the others, are they getting hit now as they try to grow the infrastructure? I don't have good visibility specifically to their supply chains, but I can only make an intelligent guess that if you're Amazon, and you have a certain list of what I would consider captive suppliers, they are going to put you on allocation. What that means is you are the first one to get provided product before anyone else, just because of the size of your business and the importance of Amazon or Google or Azure or anyone else to those customers. And that's the, the whole aspect of allocation is what I'm seeing happening everywhere, you know, on every level of the technology stack. And that really translates all into what you're doing with your channels, because when you're working with your channels, you need to start guiding them into the stratification of these different customers. You know, these are customers we're going to service first, and these are the next batch of customers. And also, by the way, allocation is not just about prioritizing a customer, but it's also prioritizing a price. And so, you know, I've definitely seen companies who are doing what they should be doing at this, in this market condition, which is saying, it doesn't matter what quoted price is out there. It doesn't matter what contracted price is out there. Right now, only people paying this price are getting subbed. Everyone else, you want to pay the other price, not a problem. Get in line and we'll get round to you. But you're not a priority. The ones who are willing to pay this price are going to get served. And I think that is something that is not just happening between suppliers and their end customers. It's also happening through the channel. Yeah. I heard this on the news the other day about a restaurant and they were saying they can't update their menus fast enough. And every day the prices are going up. So it's like, okay, Ignore that cost. That, that hamburger is not $10. It's now $13, right? And we're seeing it everywhere. I was, I was talking to um, the SBP of sales of a uh, top 20 semiconductor company two weeks ago. They are a model and customer. And uh, they've been a customer for a long time. And we were talking about the old days and past benefits. He said, you know, all that's great, the history of what you've helped us do. But right now, the real benefit we're getting out of the system, and they use this across the board for channel functions and pricing, is we have over 200,000 end customers that we service. We have to uplift prices on quotes and contracts multiple times a quarter. That's hundreds of thousands of updates that we need to do. If we didn't have a system in place like Model will do that, we would be really, we'd be leaving tens of millions of dollars every month on the table. If you were trying to keep up with that manually, yeah, that would be very difficult. You mentioned that interesting phenomenon of when COVID hit and people started thinking that they were going to have lower sales, so they lowered their expectations, communicated that to their suppliers who started lowering their expectations, and then boom, demand is much, much higher. Let's talk a little bit about demand, because you actually mentioned to me that there's some false demand in the market too. What do you mean by that? So I think that both when you think of the entire value chain of manufacturing, okay, at the end of the day, we end up with a laptop or a phone. But there's a lot of players involved between 
let's say, Apple and you and I as a consumer, right? Because you have all the component manufacturers who produce all sorts of parts that go into the phone. Uh, you have distribution that takes care of logistics, and you also have contract manufacturers who actually make the phone itself. It's not made by Apple. It's made by Foxconn or wherever it might be who actually assembles the, uh, the final product. Now, all these players are aware of the scarcity of product. And so what they're doing is stockpiling. And so this behavior of both certain types of customers and definitely people in the channel and adjacent to the channel, servicing the channel in manufacturing, have been trying to stockpile. And, and what I've seen a lot of companies do is do a lot of holistic analysis for two reasons. Number one, the reason these companies are stockpiling is twofold. A, they want to be able to continue servicing their customers. So if they have inventory, they can service them. And secondly, they know that once inventory becomes scarce, they can raise prices and they can benefit from those raised prices. The manufacturers of those products are saying, well, wait a minute, if there's an increase to the price, I should be benefiting from it, not everyone else. So, you know, downstream in the supply chain. So they want to make sure they're supplying to real demand and not just giving it to somebody else who's then going to hold on to it and raise prices later. But also, they have an interest in being able to service their customers. They want to make sure that if you're servicing a strategic customer, you want to make sure you're going to continuously have products to continuously service them. And if there's somebody else who's buying on this false demand thing, they're depleting your ability to service these customers. So there's been a lot of analysis. They've been spending a lot of time working with the end customers to truly understand what are they planning to consume? What are they planning to use? What is a quote-unquote TAM analysis of what, what is the market for our product and what market share are we getting there and how much of this is real to make sure that they are, A, not creating a shortage to not be able to supply their uh, end customers and not to be giving away the opportunity of price increases to people downstream in the supply chain. So it's been a very difficult process and a lot of holistic analysis of really understanding what's what, how a demand signal matches to the TAM and your market share and kind of bring things down to reality versus inflated orders just because people want to stockpile. And the, the technology hardware manufacturers are having to make some tough decisions about which customers to serve first. Is that correct? It is absolutely correct. It's an agonizing process for them. You know, a lot of these companies are well managed and they're not seeking to, you know, stick it to anyone. But they also have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. So if the market conditions require price increases, only those who can pay those price increases will get product. And, and I think that that is it's causing some friction throughout the whole you know, value chain, but that is happening and it has to happen. And I think that the other thing is, as you said, they have to prioritize based on strategic long-term value. And uh, you, you, you're going to rub some people the wrong way. You're going to make sure you're not rubbing your strategic customers the wrong way. Or your strategic partners, right? Because Absolutely. You'll be prioritizing not only on the, on the customer, but also on the channel. Uh, you, know, if, uh, you know, the rule of 2080 always applies. So you know, your top 20 partners are the ones that you're going to pay, get the most attention to. And by the way, this is something we heard at you know, at uh, the Channel Focus conference in multiple sessions. And obviously, we're not going to quote because Channel has rules. But, but we definitely heard multiple uh, vendors talk about their need to focus on the top 20 performers in the coming year. And others are going to have to get a little less attention because that's what's driving the business right now. Yeah. What about on the pricing side? You had mentioned to me, you didn't see it as not just a supply and demand issue. Yeah, it's a very good point. Virtually everyone I've spoken to in the industry is of the same, has the same point of view that the price increases we're seeing are not uh, transient. 
that there is some degree of price increases tied to the disconnect between supply and demand. But another big portion of the reason prices are going up is cost of manufacturing. Actual cost of manufacturing is going up. And the view is that that is not going to be a short-term aspect. It's going to last for at least the next couple of years of, uh, of these higher costs the companies need to, to deal with. And therefore, they're, they have no choice, but they're rolling that over to their customers. And, uh, you know, and, and eventually, the consumers are ending up going to pay more. Yeah. And uh, that ties into the overall price increases that we're seeing across the market. So cost of manufacturing, that comes from the cost of raw materials, the cost of the, the human resource, the, the manpower. Absolutely. I think that it's a combination of an increase in raw materials, which is a big driver. But then you have another driver, which is uh, personnel and manufacturing capacity. And that is impacted by what happened over the last 18 months, where if you let go of a thousand employees who were trained and capable of doing the job for you and have been doing it for years, and now you're starting to hire back, you're not able to hire back a thousand overnight. And even if you did, they won't be qualified to do the job overnight. So there is simply also a limited capacity to manufacture. So when you, it's a double whammy. You've got limited manufacturing capacity and an increase in, in uh, raw materials. And that's why these things are not going to get fixed quickly. They're going to take time. We're used to when brand new technology comes out, there are the folks that stand you know, in line to get the latest technology. And then I'm in the other camp. I wait a year until the price comes down. But will the price come down? Is it can we expect that now? I think that invariably it will come down unless companies start slowing down the pace of innovation and the pace of new product introduction. Yeah. That's the only thing that will prevent prices from coming down. But at the end of the day, whatever, I, I'm actually lost count. I think it's iPhone 13. Is that the thing that's out there right now? I've lost count too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm still on an iPhone 11. So, and I'm with you, I'll, I'll wait a year or two until, I, I, to me, it's less about price, it's more about, are all the bugs out? So when, you know, when the things come out, uh, they by, by default devalue the previous inventory. So unless we're now going to wait for three years before the next iPhone comes out, or the next Android or whatever, the, the next laptop, then I think that uh, it is invariable. Prices will come down a bit. They may not come down as much as we're used to them coming down, but they will have to if they're going to continue the pace of introducing new products into the marketplace. That's interesting, though, the pace of innovation. So what could slow down the pace of innovation? That is your people, right? Do you have access to the... Are you getting the talent that's innovating? And are you getting new signals from demand about consumption? You know, it was kind of interesting to see... Uh, we did an, an interesting analysis a few years ago about the consumption of the chip industry. And the chip industry, for many, many, many years, was around a $300 billion industry. And it took it, and then in a storm, it suddenly became 400 and then, you know, much higher than that. But that only happened very recently and is not, you know, consistent with past performance. The reason this happened, when you think about it, because all this technology being consumed, you would expect more chips to be needed. But the problem is, number one, that there's been productivity gains, which have been reducing the price per chip. So even though you're selling more units, you're not necessarily making more revenue. Secondly, we have all cloud computing and it's consuming all these chips, but we're selling less servers and less laptops. So we moved it from one bucket to the next. You know, we have these fantastically quick emerging markets like India and China, and they're consuming mobile devices. True, but, you know, when you go from, or Africa, you're going from no phone to a flip phone that's progress. You're not necessarily consuming the high-end smartphones where all the big chips are being consumed. 
So there was kind of a disconnect between the rate of consumption and the rate of innovation. And I think that uh, you know once you start getting demand signals, and I think that could happen by the middle or end of next year, where demand starts to dampen a bit, because that typically happens when you see inflation starting to kick up. Um, demand may go down, and if there's not a lot of demand, you may slow down the pace in which you're throwing new stuff at the market if there isn't an appetite to consume what you're introducing. Yeah. No, that's that's true, because consumers, if, if all your money is going just to fill up your tank and buy food, for, put food on the in the cupboard, yeah. You, you might wait for, because, I mean, let's face it, there is technology which is must-have, right? But there's also a big part of technology which is nice to have, right? You know, going to the next uh, iPhone is an option. You don't have to do it right now. And so, as you pointed out, as people need to spend money on other things and pay more on their mortgage or whatever it might be, they may slow down a bit. What should our channel chiefs, you know, channel leaders that are listening be thinking about? What can they do in this interesting environment? Well, I think that, you know, first thing is think about how you're enabling your channel to operate in a world where you will likely do more price changes than you did in the past. So making that easy for the channel to give them the heads up. How do they consume it? How do they get those prices on quotes or, you know, price agreements? Making that process easier for the channel is something which I think you need to spend a lot of time on. I think the other thing is guiding the channel on these. We spoke about the prioritization of customers. Okay. And I'm setting aside right now prioritization of channels because that's what the channel chief will do anyway. But even when you're working through the channel, you're not going to treat all customers equally. And so making it clear to the channel what are the priorities? What is your strategy as far as your end customers are concerned? And making sure they're aligned. So joint planning around that is going to be critical. And I think that also tailoring the programs that that clearly favor. I think that the, you know those who are getting smarter about this are really creating programs that are segmenting the market down to specific customers, or at least type of customers or size of customers, uh, to make sure that that's where you're spending your sales and marketing dollars and channel you know focus as well. And creating the programs that really incent the channels to go after that is going to be uh, very important. And I think the other thing that they need to be thinking about is that in this market, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny, in my opinion, on the financial control side of things. And so they should expect more questions coming from their CFO about what is that specific program doing for me? You know, because you know, I think CFOs are, and to some degree with legitimate reasons, getting tired of thinking of channel spend as this black box. I have, I know what I'm putting into it. I know what's coming out of it, but I don't know what happened in the middle. I don't know out of the, and again, I won't mention names, but we have customers where they have 2,000 programs in a given year. Do you really know which program is moving the needle and which one is just like what the channel is expecting to get? And it's like the cost of doing business. 2,000 incentive programs? Is that what you're saying? Wow. For one single customer of ours. And so, and so this is and it doesn't matter if it was 2,000 or if it was two dozen, frankly. When you have so many of those running simultaneously, at some point, it's very hard for you to tell what is moving the needle. And you know, would the channel have sold that anyway, and you're just giving them some free money? And which programs are going to really you know, drive them to create demand rather than just do fulfillment? Especially when you think about all the stuff of bringing in influencer you know, uh, partners and those who are non-transacting, they're really going to be scrutinizing that. 
And there are ways. There are ways to empower the channel chief to correlate the actual individual programs and the trends and changes you're seeing in inventory and POS in the channel. Model N, I'll put a plug in there, can help you do that. And so we can actually provide the intelligence that shows you what is the connection between what the channel is doing and the sales and trends in inventory and the programs you're creating. And being able to, being equipped with that data and just be able to press a button and show that to your CFO makes that discussion a fact-driven discussion and a much easier one to have. And then you're both on the same page. The stuff that's really moving the needle and, and generating business and engaging the channels, we do more of that. The ones that are not, we do less of that. You mentioned to me some uh, customers who are double or triple stacking incentives that ne shouldn't necessarily be stacked and maybe actually wasting money. Yeah. And uh, so first of all, I think that, again, if you were to go to the financial organization, to the financial controllers, to the channel finance team, and definitely to the CFO, they just hate that. Because for the same transaction, you gave a special price rebate. You also gave, you maybe have also paid some price protection on that. Uh, inventory, and you may also have paid out a performance rebate because they hit a sudden goal. And so when you look at the net price of what you're left with, the net value of what you're left with, it's not really what you're gunning for. And the problem is that you're managing these things with different tools in different teams because part of it is handled in sales operations or deal desk. Some of it has happened in, in sales operations or channel operations. Other parts are handled in finance. And so they only find out at the end of the year when they do their waterfall analysis and say, ah, that's what happened but they're not in the position to actually influence the outcome as you're transacting. And um, in some cases, you have companies who have really conditioned the partner to expect that as part of the business. And, you know, again, I won't mention names of companies, but right now we're talking to a company that it's about a billion dollars in sales. And just looking at how much they are double dipping into the channel, they did an internal audit and found around on just one type, by the way, of double dipping, which was the the uh, discount rebate and yeah, on, just on discount rebates and standard discounts, they were double dipping to the tune of twenty five million dollars in a single year, and that's just on one type of of program that is being paid out to the channel. Uh, we've seen other companies again, won't mention them, fifty billion dollar players. Their internal audits found between seven to eight percent of total program money is an overpayment. And that shouldn't be accept, accept, you know, acceptable to anyone. Set aside the channel people. As a channel chief, you shouldn't accept that because what could you have done with 7 to 8% more money to spend in the channel on actual other programs? You could actually drive more sales. This is just giving it away and not getting any value back. So yeah, this is a problem. Companies who and solving it is an executive mandate. You're not, especially when you're working with your channels in a certain way and they're already used to it, and suddenly you're coming to them and saying, I'm going to take that away from you because I shouldn't have been giving it to you in the first place. You could be taking one or two points of operating capital away from that channel. You can't do that overnight. You need to prepare the channel for that eventuality. You need to provide some carrots along with that stick. And in order to enforce it, it needs to come from the top. This is like a CEO, CFO you know, mandate that should come to the organization and say, guys, we're going to do this. We know it's going to be difficult. We know it's going to be hard. And there are ways to sweeten the blow for the channels. And we need to take time to communicate and you know do a transition over time. And you don't start with your biggest channels. You start with some of the smaller ones to learn from you know mistakes that may occur during the transition. But at the end of the day, the company has a fiduciary duty to not just give away that money. Yeah, that's a lot of money to be spending, particularly when prices are going up, supplies are short. 
that will be a good role play for the next channel focus. Absolutely. I mean, again, what we've seen is 7 to 8% is the average. We've seen companies north of 10% in overpayments. When you look at it, that can amount to between 1% to 2% of total revenue of a company. That's crazy to give it away. Yeah, yeah, that is very costly. Hanan, you have learned a lot about the channel. I'm, I'm very curious. I always love talking about people's channel journey. How did you, you know, move from college into the channel? What was your path? It was really through joining Model N. So it was well, well after my study period because I spent prior to Model N, I spent about seven years in high tech multimedia product development for companies like HP and Learning Company and, and IBM in a company called Click Online. And then after that, I spent about seven years in government contracting, um, so servicing. Companies like Raytheon and Boeing and um, Lockheed Martin and those guys. So not a lot of channel learning out of those experiences. But for the last 16 and a half years at Model N, it was all about channel almost from day one, just by virtue of coming into a company that was servicing companies who sell 70% of their business through the channel. And so, you know, it was a learning experience uh, very early on for me because the entire solution design and what customers needed was all focused on about how they're interacting with the channel. And so uh, early on, we actually started engaging directly with some of the channels to learn from them. You know, some of the biggest names you can think of, whether it's Ingram Micro or Avnet or Arrow or any, any one of those players, and really trying to learn from them what do they want from their suppliers so that we could better design the software servicing that process. And that investment of time and the success we've had over the last 16 and a half years has really paid off because today I can tell you that from Model N's perspective, we just in the last six months had four companies referenced to us, not by prior customers, not by users who move companies, but by channels who are telling the suppliers, listen, we need you to make it easier for us to do business with you. We consider this to be best in class. Why don't you go and evaluate that? And, and they reached out to us and, um, and engaged. So that to me is, is the, the best sort of benefit we've had of engaging directly with the channels, even though they're not our customers. And just so you know, we have probably 30,000 business users in the channels using our software, and they never paid for our software. It's our customers who are paying for the software and paying for the licenses who are given then to the channels and using our platform to self-service on the um, on the uh, on the platform so so we've it's been a learning journey almost from day one but you know i've been in, in enterprise software and in software generally for over 30 years the channel it's been only a 16 and a half year journey for me <laughs> well you're a quick study you've learned a lot in 16 and a half years so uh hanan what do you like to do outside of the channel what, what other passions do you have aside from spending time with my lovely wife and two kids uh and our great dog i am an amateur astronomer so I have served as the um, vice president and uh, board member of the uh, San Mateo County Astronomical Society for six years. I've also been certified to operate the 30-inch telescope at the Fremont Peak Observatory Association. I've built my own observatory, and I'm also an astrophotographer. And uh, I have a uh, website you can check out. It's called greenharkobservatory.com, and you can see all of the images I take there. Oh, cool. Green, green arc? Green hawk. Green Hawk. Okay. Green Hawk. All right. Observatory.com. Observatory. And that's the observatory you built? Yes. Although uh, it has been on a hiatus now for five years because we moved five years ago. I have not built one to replace it, but I do the astrophotography without the observatory. So the, the photos still go up there. Interesting. What got you into that? It started with my grandfather. He was 
always sort of getting me interested and excited about science. And he had a binoculars and also a small telescope. And uh, we used to talk about stars and look at the moon. And the first time I saw, I think I was 10 or 11, and I saw the moon and saw that I was looking at an object that is not Earth, and I could actually see mountains on this other object and realize there's so much more out there. That really got me hooked. And I did um, focus on science. I actually majored in uh, biology and chemistry, and I minored in physics and math. And then um, for years, I was just a, a, you know, a couch astronomer. I would just watch everything about it and read everything about it. And about 18 years ago, my wife told me to, why don't you just get off the couch and do something about it? And I think that with my um, annual spend on astronomy, she's come to have, have regretted that recommendation. But it's a lot of fun for me. <laughs> that is wild. Do you have any desire to go up into space? Uh, mixed emotions on that one. On the one hand, the adventurous side of me says, yes, hell yes. Watching Will Shatner come down after, uh, you know, Captain Kirk uh, come down after his launch and just to see how overcome he was from those 10 minutes of, of being in space in low orbit it was very inspiring for me. But I'll admit I'm a bit of a coward and I think that it's still, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, still not, it's still not mundane. I think there's still a lot of risk involved. So uh, maybe not in the next few years. <laughs> well, like we said about technology, we can wait a little bit till the cost comes down and they work all the bugs out. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I like, I like that approach. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'll put a link to that website, your website, uh, and I'm really curious uh, to check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes for us. All right. Well, fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. Any last uh, thoughts or advice or something that I didn't ask you that you wish I did? No, just maybe one piece of advice for, for the channel chiefs that might be listening is, I, I think that one of the biggest things you could do for the channels today is to uh, unify their experience. I think that, you know, we talk about unification when we create a portal. That's very nice. It does consolidate a lot of data, but it doesn't really unify the channel experience. And we shouldn't cheat ourselves into believing that a single portal actually does that because uh, they may go to that portal to get information, but they still have to interact with a set of tools to submit their point of sale data or inventory updates and another tool if, they, if, if it's physical product to address uh, price protection and yet another tool for the incentives rebates or MDFs and another tool for pricing. So that isn't the unified experience. And there are ways to unify that experience end to end. And I think that exploring those and retooling to support those will probably have the biggest impact you could have with uh, the channels, aside from what we said earlier about enabling them to focus on, you know, aligning on your business strategy in the marketplace and facilitating, you know, faster pricing processes. I think that that would be the biggest win. Yeah. You know, and there was conversation around that too in, in different perspectives at Channel Focus, you know, and just unifying your programs, you know, make them simplified and flexible for all, all these different. Yeah. And the other thing is, and again, I don't want to be too contrarian to some of the panelists there, but I will be. What the hell? The, the thing is that some people saying, well, you know, the channels want to be, get tailored programs and they want them to be flexible, but then by default, that makes it more complex because you need to track everything in more detail. And I would say that isn't necessarily the case. Number one, a lot of the validations could be done automatically by software, and you don't need to have your channel drum through so many hoops to prove that they did something. Moreover, there are certain things that you should know from your own interactions. You know, sometimes we get so engrossed in the, in the weeds that we forget to take a step back and ask ourselves, why do we have channels in the first place? 
We have channels in the first place because from a sales and marketing and logistics standpoint, they're providing us with something which we could not do more effectively and for less money. Because if we could, we wouldn't be using the channels. That's as simple as that. And when we are trying to hold them accountable to very high levels of accountability and scrutiny about prove to me that you're eligible for this payment because our finance department is demanding it, in some cases, it's justifiable. And as I said, can be automated by software. In some other cases, you could just be looking at your own data because if there is a sale there with an end customer and your sales team and your sales engineers or you know, pre-sales people were not involved, then it's the channel, guys. Pay them. <laughs> you, know? you don't have to have them fill you know, four forms and triplicates to prove that. But again, even the ones where you do need those forms, some of it can be automated and you can make it a lot easier for them. That is music to my ears. I've had that conversation way too many times and filled out way too many of those forms. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Hanan. Really enjoyed the conversation. Enjoyed meeting you at Channel Focus and, and look forward to, to seeing you again. Thanks, Rob. It was a real pleasure. All right. Cheers. All right, guys. How was that for Talking Turkey? Thank you, Hanan, for a frank and practical discussion about a very real supply chain problem. And thanks again to our Channel Journey sponsor, Allbound. If you're looking for an easier way to manage deal registration, a better way to track partner opportunities, or to provide your partners easier access to sales and marketing materials, as well as to trainings and certifications, be sure to check them out at allbound.com. For today's show notes, just go to channeljourneys.com forward slash CJ78, and you could subscribe while you are there. I am really looking forward to our next channel episode. I hope you are too. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. And to my American listeners, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.